0: Psychomedy is brought to you by ThreadUp, Manchester-based therapy that supports creativity.
1: I'm Rafaela Nunes, the founder of ThreadUp and the counsellor supporting the creative community. Comedians and creatives in general can experience anxiety, depression, low moods, and this in turn can affect their creativity. One-to-one counselling can facilitate a safe space for creatives to explore any difficulties, to gain self-awareness, to develop strategies that work, and ultimately, to create choices that are aligned with the natural creative flow. If you're in need of support, then please get in touch.
0: Visit threadup.co.uk to book your counselling sessions at reduced rates when you quote psychomedy. comedy I'm Nathan Cassidy stand-up comedian and bachelor of science in psychology a degree I definitely remember every single word of it gives a massive amount of credibility to me discussing the psychology of stand-up comedy with today's very special guest the wonderful Elf Lyons Elf how are you today I'm good I'm content good content that's a nice word so, as normal on Psychomedy, we won't be looking at each other uh, for the duration of the conversation. Elf is laying back here on my sofa. So, Elf, I've known you for uh, best part of ten years, and uh, you've always been, I think, seemingly more than content to me. You've always there's been a kind of light around you. I think you know you always light up a room when you come in. You all seem happy and positive. Are you, <laughs> Are you, you're laughing at that as if you, you're putting no, just, that on?
1: That does not sound like me at all, but that's a really flattering idea that I could light up a room. <laughs> I it was is,
0: co- you always seem pretty happy, content. Yeah, I'm
1: probably, I'm a pretty jovial yeah. person I think. I don't Good. know, I always feel miserable internally but then i suppose when you walk into a room you can't bring that on other people it's like complaining that you're tired it serves no purpose so just try and hold it in mm. Though I'm, I'm saying paradigm. is i don't know you at all maybe
0: pardon what i'm saying is i don't know you at all and, uh...
1: <laughs> we've never gotten smashed together and seen the true anxiety within the person
0: well that's what today is all about <laughs> um yeah we should get some beers involved in this podcast that will uh that will open people's minds. I've never drugs, had a maybe. therapy
1: session with beers before. <laughs> I used to have therapy sessions at the Priory when I was a child. Oh, wow. And I remember the woman, June, would just make me play with puppets incessantly. I think she was really obsessed with me coming out as gay. I think that was like, really, if, I, if I came out as gay, I feel she would have cracked something. And then she made <laughs> me draw lots of things. And so I used to draw such violent imagery just for mainly, I think, just to keep her and inf- keep her entertained because I thought otherwise I'm not providing. Not realising that the more weird things that I drew, the longer I was in psychotherapy for.
0: So God, when was this? When uh, How old were you at the Priory? I
1: was from, at the Priory from like the age of 10 to 18. Okay. On and off.
0: That's a grand place to, uh, to Yeah, be. well
1: it was, I think it was just a boarding school that really didn't know how to deal with mental illness and children. Mm. So they just sort of shipped you there.
0: Right. It was quite oh.
1: alright. Oh, I mean, I didn't really know any better. My parents didn't really know. They were sort of trusting the teacher's advice, so mm. they sort of went along with it. Um, mm. And they were really supportive during that whole time. But it was mainly because I had really bad obsessive-compulsive disorder. Right. Yeah. This is laugh a minute. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I mean, this is what this is all about. I mean, God, you've, you've, gone, in, you, you've gone in hard there. Um, 10 to 18 at the Priory. Do you mind talking about that a bit more in terms of... So it was mainly for OCD, was it? It was
1: mainly for OCD. I got you don't many... have
0: to make these things funny at all. There's nothing maybe funny about... Uh, I don't know, let's find out about having OCD at 10 to 18.
1: I had such bad obsessive compulsive disorder because we watched so many horror films as a kid mm. and I was so afraid about being not safe mm. and being in a dormitory with loads of girls. i just check things, you know, religiously, like, swinging doors back and front, turning lights on and off. And it was really difficult, obviously, to try and manage that and those addictions in a dormitory with other girls, all from different religions and backgrounds and different countries. We've all got our different sort of behaviours. And we're all trying to learn how to share a room with other people. So it was very anarchic and quite emotionally distressing. Mm. And I wasn't really... I didn't, th- I didn't really adjust to boarding school very well, first thing. Mm. It was too much for me.
0: Mm. And how often were your therapy sessions?
1: I would go... I managed to time it really well. They asked me, when's the best time for you to come and see them to check. Because I also had a psychiatrist who helped my OCD. So I'd have two hours. And I realised that if I really put the case forward that I couldn't miss certain subjects... I could get it to be during double Latin on a Friday, <laughs> which meant that every single Friday I'd miss double Latin.
0: So this is a long time to be at the Priory. I mean, did that did that help you out? Uh, are, you, are you still in therapy now? Are you I okay? see a therapist
1: now. I was yeah. really against therapy when I went to university. Mm. It's funny, isn't it? Because I sort of, I was so, I've been on medication for such a long period of my teenage existence and also oh. in a very bizarre place to grow up and become a woman that by the time I went to uni I refused my education I never went to the doctors I didn't talk to anyone about mental illness I was just I was really anti-therapy because I'd been sort of indoctrinated to it at such a young age not saying it was a bad thing but sometimes it's like if you made it to experience something so intensely and then it's only now in sort of my mid-twenties being slightly calmer I think I'm a far more mellow human. Uh. And also everyone's attitude towards mental health has changed so much now. Everyone I know seems to have a therapist yeah. or recommend a therapist. There's no, you know, it's not, it's no longer something that you whisper about behind closed doors. Mm. So I'm, yeah, I I, I, have, I didn't know any different. That's the weird thing about boarding school, about being away for that long. I don't know any different. Yeah. So it's hard sometimes to uh, um, convey what it was like because I don't really have a comparison point.
0: Let's go on to stand-up comedy. So for those that don't know your work, there's the, uh, for me, there's the very funny club comic Elf Lions and then there's the more experimental, theatrical, boundary-pushing Elf Lions. Would that be a fair summary of your career?
1: I I suppose so. I think Mm. that sounds fair and legitimate. Yeah. I mean, I can do a club gig. I don't do a huge amount of them, but mm. I can do them and I can smash them in the dick if need be. <laughs> um, at the same time, I also like... I think my main interest has always been doing in spectacles, like one-hour shows and collaborating. And
0: Yeah. Are you generally in a happier space mentally doing doing that rather than the club gigs?
1: Um, I, it really depends on the people that you're doing it with and the environment. Yeah, Because sometimes if you're backstage... I did a few club gigs in Guildford, in, not Guildford, um, at the Gilda Balloon in Edinburgh, oh. and the team, the guys who were doing the show, and it was Ed Hedges as well, who's just an absolute babe, oh. it was so lovely to be a part of a gang for those few days, or going going and doing gigs with sort of Tom Deacon or Dame Baptiste, there are some really lovely people in the industry who I have the best time with, yeah. and that's nicer than, you know, touring constantly on your own, which is what I have been doing recently. Yeah. But it depends on the work, and it depends on how well-fed I've been
0: <laughs> and how
1: much sleep I've had, because if I've not eaten and I've not slept, I turn into a dick. right,
0: <laughs> <laughs> OK. We're going to dive straight into a clip of your stand-up, because I think it illuminates your, uh, for me, your sunny style and, and other aspects of you. Let's have a listen into this clip. It's the first section of the gig, the first 40 or 50 seconds of a gig from this year. Let's have a listen in.
1: Ah, oh, hello. Uh, I'm just going to take my shoes off because I feel a bit more comfortable. Hello. Hello, Cheeky. Every time you think I'm funny, can you ring the bell? Fantastic. You are now entirely in charge of my mental well-being. There we go. Oh, oh I'm everyone you've ever met on a night bus. Um,
0: oh,
1: oh, God, it's just... Oh, oh, I've got to stop doing that. Oh, It feels good, but do it when I get home. Anyway... Um, called an
0: ordeal Um, so at the corner of my eye I'm not looking at you but were you putting your fingers in your ears yes I was okay I'm so sorry
1: no it's all right I just cannot listen to myself back sorry no it's all right I I mean I need to learn but I I cannot watch footage of myself back Mm. but it was a great gig
0: so it did uh, uh, work I had
1: a lovely gig but when you I, I know my agent asked me to watch it back and I just watch it going how can that be considered a good gig because <laughs> you're so it's so different to you when you're at pleasure on stage like yeah. the person you are internally to the person you are viewed externally is so
0: contrasting. So there was a lot in that first 40 50 seconds and of course you're just uh, trying to be funny but there's also um, there was shoes off to be comfortable there was every time I'm funny ring a bell There was, you're in charge of my mental well-being, you're, um, I'm everyone you've ever met on a night bus. There was a lot in that first 20 seconds of that gig. Also, Um,
1: I'm hitting myself in the vagina at the same time, which you can't (laughs) get when you're listening to it. But that's what I'm doing the whole time. I'm sort of doing a monotonous, wanking gesture, which I find really
0: calming. Yeah. I mean, you say to the audience member with the bell, you're in charge of my mental well-being. How is your mental well-being, you know, just before gigs and in those first 50 seconds of gigs?
1: Do you... Um, I, get, I get a temperature, and I think I'm too sick to do the gig. I get mm. it every time, and I'm like, I'm too sick. I'm I've going heard to you say this, that you...
0: You want to cancel the gig just yeah. before... Is that is that in most gigs? Is that...
1: No, well, last night I did a gig in York and it was interesting because normally for the show that I'd be doing, Love Songs,
0: hmm.
1: I dance on the stage as the audience come in because I find it a really good way of seeing what the audience are like because I smile at them and if they smile back, I know we're in for a good ride. Hmm. But last night, just because of how early we opened doors and everything, I was in a dressing room, so I didn't really get to see the audience. And, um, and it was bizarre because I really didn't feel any nerves or anxiety or anything at all. And I don't mean that in a good way. I mean it in quite a frightening way because I felt so... not calm, but sort of not sombre either. That sort of weird neutral, you know, it's like a greyness. Yeah, And then in the final 30 seconds before I knew I was about to come on, suddenly I sort of turbocharged. But it was, um, if you're not nervous before the gig, I think that's a really worrying sign.
0: Because
1: I think it means your attitude or your care has changed. Or that you perhaps need to have a break from gigging for a bit.
0: Yeah. So does that really worry you when that sombre feeling comes over you?
1: Sometimes, but luckily... I think I'm very lucky in that one, I don't gig a huge amount, like I do gig a lot. I work seven days a week, oh. I gig at least three or four nights, but I, don't, I rarely do the weekends. Yeah. I tend to do the more alternative scene, Yeah. which allows me to be more experimental and more free flowing and I do a lot of improv. Mm. And also I've got other things that define me as, because I try and remember the moment my gig finishes, I'm not a comedian anymore, I'm a woman who's finished her work. So I don't define myself as a comedian, like predominantly I'm a comedian, sometimes I'm also a writer, I'm a teacher, I'm also a woman, (laughs) you know, I try and make sure I've got a balance. So for the last few months when I felt a bit, oh, I'm not really in the mood to do comedy, you know, I know it's a transient feeling, but also I've got other things that I can put all my energy and resources into. And that's sort of what I'm aiming for for next year. Doing more collaborative work.
0: Yeah, that's good. Um, Because do you find it um, sometimes overpowering the nerves, the anxiety that you get? You know, I've heard you in other interviews saying that your mind is not built or one's mind is not built to do this job and stand in front of people and ask for judgment. Is that? um...
1: Oh, definitely. I think you've got to be a bit sadistic inherently to do this job. Mm. And also the desire to not... I sometimes wonder if it's that weird psychological self-harm thing of going, I don't deserve stability. (laughs) (laughs) I want to constantly put myself through high levels of anxiety every single day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but can you trace that back to anywhere? I mean, we, we could maybe go back to your childhood in terms of being a... Maybe a non-conventional childhood. Again, I've read and heard you talking about your early childhood um, not being incredibly conventional in terms of sometimes not being going to school, and that led by your parents. You know, can you can you trace it back that far? Oh, definitely.
1: Were... We were always weird. Hmm. My mum always used to say it was. She always used to think it was me and her against the world hmm. when I was little because I just didn't really fit in anywhere. But also, I didn't always make it easy for myself. I always went for being a bit different. And also, I think when I was little, I used to have a, I I had a real temper. I was really, I remember being quite um, volatile as a child. I don't know what that's down to, but I think it was, you know, when you go to a, sometimes certain environments make you feel so vulnerable and scared that you thrash out in response. And I remember not really enjoying primary school at all. Mm. I guess if I'd say I hated primary school, I enjoyed that like terribly, terribly little.
0: So five years old to ten.
1: Yeah, not at all. Mm. I feel like I don't know. It just always seems when you analyse yourself, it seems like the most boring thing in the world. Like I don't feel particularly funny or interesting right now. Because I'm so used to, especially in a podcast formation, you have to tend to be a persona of yourself for a bit more high energy. Yeah, yeah. The fact you've got me lying on a very nice DFS sofa. <laughs> also the fact that I've spent this small... Is it Ikea? Ikea. Nice. Nothing
0: against DFS. If you want to sponsor the podcast, that's... that's or if my... Ikea wants to sponsor the podcast. I'll give you a cut podcast. down price. Yeah.
1: But, um, and also being, I stayed in a travel lodge last night. Um, <laughs> nothing against a travel lodge. <laughs> but again i'm really i'm so, i hate i love hotels because i love the anonymity is that the word anonymity oh. of them and the timelessness of them and the fact you can really just sort of be yourself in a hotel room yeah but also i've got a crippling phobia of the dark and because of my ocd it always peaks in hotel rooms so i always have to keep the bathroom light like on and I have to keep the door wide open and I have to pull the curtains back uh. but the problem is I then can't sleep and then the fan in the bathroom make a noise so I can't sleep so now when I go to <laughs> hotels I have a, like a complete eye mask that blocks out all light and earplugs that completely block out any sound so it sounds absolutely redundant because people <laughs> go wait so you go to sleep in a fully lit room but with an eye mask on and earplugs and I
0: go yes um yeah <laughs> yeah um you said just a second ago you struggle um not being funny but there you are <laughs> is there uh you know is is there a struggle in terms of you know telling the truth of who you are and uh, oh definitely I don't yeah. think
1: I'm very inter- I don't no that's not true but I it isn't I, god it's I,
0: interesting I can tell yeah. you right now we're only a few Look. minutes in it's incredibly interesting. Well, and that's it's...
1: good. Because I think I'm... In, like, I like being on my own. Yeah. I, I, like, I can keep myself entertained. Mm. I get a bit lonely. Yeah. But I, I'm very happy. Like, I love reading. I love watching films. Yeah. I can always get. I can always keep myself... I love train journeys. Yeah. You know, I like looking out the window. I think I'm very inquisitive. Yeah. But when people ask you about yourself... Yeah. I don't always think I'm... And especially off stage, after you've done a comedy gig,
0: mm. when you're
1: going at 100 million miles per hour... Yeah, and you're sort of going into turbo mode, and then people think that you can continue that energy level. Yeah, and they want to have a drink with you and chat to you after the gig. And all I really want is to sit in silence and be surrounded around other people telling funny stories. Or
0: yeah,
1: I can't. I I find it really. It's why when I meet someone who loves telling stories or who's really funny, like I love storytelling comics. Mm. They are my absolute favorite mm. comics. Who can just spin a yarn. Yeah. That is my, that's the stuff that really, even when you think about what type of comedy you like, because I don't really watch a lot of clown, the stuff that I do, Yeah. it's storytelling that really uh, blows me away and seduces me. Yeah. And that's what I always sort of crave.
0: Yeah. I think we get lost sometimes surrounding ourselves with comics that... It's normal to constantly be funny, and actually, the people, a lot of the people listening to this, the the normal is the complete opposite. It's interesting stories like what you're telling. It's you know, it's um, if we can just go back to infant school and just before for a sec, is there anything about your first year or two that you've learned from your parents that puts sheds any light on the kind of person that you became? Because. As probably everyone knows, those first six months, year of your life does shape you a lot. Is there anything that happened in those times? What, when I was about? born? Yeah, well, in the first year of your life. Did you ever ask your mum in terms of... Oh,
1: know? apparently I loved watching Home and Away. That was the only time I'd stopped crying. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> That's and what I just, was looking for. And apparently I just... Um, there's a really funny <laughs> video, actually, that I really love of my granddad squeak. So they've made, they've made like a little crash out of all the puffs in their house. Yeah. So they've got four puffs all back to back, and I'm sort of in the middle of the puffs and to keep me safe. So I'm like, you know, apparently I was always a very busy child. I was always constantly, you know, I was, you know, I was working as a CEO of my own sand pit <laughs> from a very young age. And I just keep on climbing out of the crash of the little thing and touching the television. And my granddad's squeak is going, no, Emily-Anne picks me up and puts me back in the crash, And then when I think he's not looking, I climb out and I do the exact same thing. And I just do it repeatedly. And then on like the fifth time or something, he hits me and he goes, no, I told you, no, don't do that. And even though he's hit me, I then just go just literally just to spite him, get out and just hug the television, which I always think, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I will not be told. And I do not like being confined to one specific space.
0: Yeah,
1: nice. I also walked, I did my first steps on my first birthday, which okay. I think is incredibly organised of me. <laughs> I don't know, I don't think, I, I knew I was a very cute baby. I was also a very ill baby. I was always ill, but I was so adorable. Right. Other than that, pretty much <laughs> normal. Oh, and also, um, what else? Um... Oh, I still remember I got cast as the... I was a very emotional child. Hmm. And I remember being cast as the Bible in the... (laughs) And the, tea, the teachers. So it was it was set on Christmas Eve in the toy shop and all the dolls are really upset that they've not been sold yet. And then they're all worried about what will happen on Boxing Day because if they're not sold in time for Christmas, they'll go on the Boxing Day sale. The narrative arc, I, I, I will admit, doesn't make the best sense. But what happens is suddenly they go, what's this book on the shelf? and it's me, the Bible, and I say the most important role of Christmas is the role of God the birth of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Saviour. And I, every rehearsal, would get so overwhelmed by the emotion of the play, I would cry. And the teacher would be like, Emily Anne, why are you crying? And I would just pretend that it was because the straps of my costume were hurting. But the truth was I just found it really poignant. And it really affected me.
0: It's affecting me right now.
1: Such a weird play.
0: Be the Bible. Yeah, I was the Bible, which
1: actually was the lead part. So there we go.
0: I think you're probably the only person in history to have ever played the Bible.
1: It was a really well-made costume, actually. Mrs. Quinn did a really solid job. Because it was like a proper book and I stood in like the binder. So the pages opened up around me.
0: Wow. That's... Like,
1: I mean, it's probably not that impressive in comparison to War Horse. But when you think that, you know, she's in the middle of, you know, doing all the nativity plays for all the different years and they still managed to pull off a Bible. I mean, good on her.
0: Right. So, after school, after university, you started comedy in 2008, mm-hmm. um, how did your parents feel about that move?
1: My parents have always been really supportive over what I do, yeah. but the key was that they were always like, if you're going to do it, you do it well. Yeah. So my dad came to my first ever comedy gig and gave me some really hard <laughs> feedback, because he was basically like, you're not very funny, and in hindsight I was like, fuck you dad, I'm 17 and I've never done comedy before. Mm. also make you, you brought feel all, all your time. work colleagues. I really? God, yeah. um, they're really the hard. They're really intense parents. They're mm. loving and they're so supportive. Yeah. But like we go hard, we work, we play hard, work harder. It's pretty much the catchphrase. That or failure is not an option, um, which was from the Apollo mission. You know is it Apollo 13 when they get yeah, yeah so Apollo 13 the phrase was failure is not an option we will get these boys home and my dad always used to bring us up on that phrase so for everything failure is not an option
0: right bring so, you mean, up on that phrase what say it regularly
1: yeah I mean we've got it on coasters <laughs> we've got it on like
0: <laughs> why is that funny it's not funny at all
1: we've got it like there's a big slide on the wall yeah um, on the wall Writes it. Towels. No, we don't have any tea towels actually. Um, Yeah.
0: So yeah, okay. (laughs) Wet hands is an option. Like we uh, are a
1: pretty academic family. I mean, my dad the other day. Can we not?
0: Can can we not move on from failures? (laughs) Option just yet (laughs) on coasters.
1: Yeah. Well, obviously.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, they coasters? sell
1: them at the London, at the Washington Science Museum on coasters. So my dad bought us all hats and said, "Failure is not an option." We've <laughs> <She> got to let That's say faili- Actually, I'm really upset because my hat, which says "Failure is not an option," has gone missing, and I'm genuinely devastated because it was. That my sounds favourite. like a failure.
0: Yeah, oh, devastated. Which proves it's an option, you know? Um, do you? Do you believe this? Failure is not an option?
1: Well, it depends how you classify failure. Because well, even though I've failure? mucked up lots of things, mm. I think failure is when you give up and right. failure is when you not you don't do your 100% best to... It doesn't mean you have to get 100% in the test. It doesn't mean that you're, yeah. You know, 60% isn't a failure, whatever it is, unless it's...
0: But- But did your dad clarify this when he he brought the coasters home? Did he say this is what failure means or?
1: No, but I mean, I was always just, I think, because I wasn't the traditional, like Lulu and Jared, my brother and sister, are both academic. Mm. I am, I know I'm clever, but I'm clever. I was really dyslexic, really dyspraxic, really socially anxious. Mm. And my parents had a lot of issues with trying to get me to fit in. So... You know, failure was not an option, was sort of encouraged in you like painting, great, you like doing drama. So they did everything in their power to make sure I had as much confidence as I could mm. for a really tall ginger girl that always had knits. Mm. And also I used to I used to always I got really into masturbating on furniture when I was a child at really young age. I used to like start I used to rub my genitals against the sofa. And so my and I think doing that in public used to obviously really throw people. (laughs) And then my nanny Squeak really helped because she had a bowl of glass fruit. And I always used to do it, especially when Helen Mirren was on during silent witness as a kid. And so every time I went to like... So every time I was like, she went, look, every time, rather than rubbing yourself against the sofa here's a pear, and it was one of the glass pairs. and she this is your happy pear. And every time you want to rub your bits, you can use the happy pear. And so I'd go, okay, thank you, Nanny Squeak. And then we'd be watching a film, and then I'd go, Nanny, can I have my happy pear, please? And she'd give me my happy pear, and we'd just all watch a film, and I'd just rub myself with it until I felt happy. She'd go, do you like that? And I'd go, yeah, it makes me feel very happy. And she still got it. <laughs> she still got the glass fruit. Oh, my God. So, I mean, my parents are quite open-minded, but still, you know, work hard. They're both working-class parents who do, you know, from... My dad's also from an immigrant background, so they're both, like, you got to hold your own. Yeah. Do your best.
0: Yeah. Okay. I think I'm going to stop asking questions and let you talk, I think, just for the next 30 minutes. Oh, sorry. No, it's great. Am I talking too much? No, absolutely not. <laughs> Oh god, right. Um
1: is this rela- is this relatable?
0: It is relatable. Okay. Would you like a pair? Oh um, no, I'm okay. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um right. So, failure is not an option. Um obviously interesting cuz you're going into comedy then when failure of course is an option. Um mm-hmm. and um you trained with uh, Philip Goulier mm. we talked about this With Alexis Dubas, who did the course as well. Oh yeah, he did
1: the summer course. Yeah,
0: so you did the course for two years, was it? Yeah, I did the two year course, the proper (laughs) course, the proper one.
1: Oh, when these people say I studied with Golia, and you're like, what did you do? And they're like, we did a week. and I'm like, (laughs) whatever. Yeah, you do become a little bit (laughs) once you've experienced the trauma
0: in full. Yeah, traumatic.
1: Oh, definitely, but yeah. one of the best experiences of my life. And mm. uh, those days were just some of the most beautiful and wonderful times of my life. And I'm so lucky that I've met the people I did when I was there. Like, I, it's, I think one of the happiest, genuinely the happiest times I've ever been alive was at that school.
0: Great. Right, why?
1: Just the joy of it. It was a small community. Everyone was so vibrant. Everyone had, it was slightly bizarre you know cuz to go to that school you had to have really you know it's not trad- it's not a traditional conventional drama school everybody was a different shape size background language it was a real melting pot of diversity i would say in terms of the theater and comedy scene uh, and you experienced so much vulnerability with each other yeah it's weird cuz in our year there were 30 of us and, you know, it fluctuates when it's clown, the module clown, which is two weeks. So it gets a lot bigger because lots of people come just to do that, which is weird because it's definitely by no stretch the best module.
0: On that course, you, the clowning course, we, you learn to fail, I guess. That's mm-hmm. part of it. And talking about, you know, failure is not an option. And you, you said there that failure is give, giving up. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in terms of being on stage and... Um, where failure comes in, uh, fear of failure, what what do you consider failure in terms of your gigs or your shows?
1: I suppose sometimes like those feelings when you do give up or when you're giving all the energy mm. and it's not being returned for and you just you sort of have to fake a climax really sort of like sex it's sort of you know you're both trying to work good sex is when you're both feeding off the other person and trying to make sure that you're both on call and checking in with each other Uh but you're giving all your attention to the other person Uh and then hopefully that ends in a very mutually beneficial experience for both Uh but then sometimes some comedy audiences just want to lie back and think of England and they want you to perform what they think is meant to be good comedy mm. without going oh maybe we will try this position or hey you're not really into that I've never really liked this this is you know and it ends up just sort of you being like oh, oh, getting all sweaty and tired and actually pulling loads of muscles and really trying to keep the energy up for both of you and actually should just divorce
0: <laughs> absolutely And your parents see you gigs now and you, oh yeah shows? they've seen a lot of my gigs they've seen all of them and uh they're very How's supportive. Your How's your dad now following the feedback from your first gig?
1: Oh, he, well, he realises if he tries and gives me feedback, I will absolutely destroy him. Because <laughs> my rule is, unless I ask you for feedback, don't you dare give me feedback. Right. Because, Does he try? Oh, you know, well, obviously. Mm. But then I will just destroy him. Because mm. um, I'm the one in charge of editing his website. So oh, really? if he's too mean to me, I'll just put loads of grammatical errors. <laughs> nah, 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 nah. But we've got a really good relationship, my family
0: and
1: I. Yeah. Like, it's volatile. Like all family relationships, I think, but very, very good.
0: But you you say they're supportive. Do you get a sense that they think you're great on stage? Oh, yeah, they think I'm brilliant. Yeah.
1: Like, last night after my gig, which I didn't feel like went particularly well, and I was just really upset walking back to my travel lodge, and I had an egg salad and a yoghurt in my bag, and I had no pear. I was just walking home feeling really morose. And my mum on the phone was like, they don't understand how brilliant you are. You are phenomenal. This show is amazing. You are so clever. Sometimes people don't realise how clever you are. Do not worry. And I was like, okay, love you. And then right. I had a bath. Had a bath and watched Drag Race and then fell asleep and put my earplugs in, my eye mask on and turned all the lights on.
0: <laughs> so are your parents you go to when you're, when you're struggling at all on the road or...? Um... Yes. How do, you, how, do you, how do you cope generally?
1: How do I cope? I've got sort of, you know, safety nets in place. Mm. Um, I've got a really great network of friends. Like yeah. I'm really, really lucky with the friends I've got. And I take my friendships really seriously. Like if you're in my gang, if I say, if we're going to be friends, that's it. I'm there for you. Like we will, you know, we'll spend time together, chat. doesn't mean we have to WhatsApp because I don't WhatsApp, I don't have a smartphone. But, you know, I will call you, we'll meet up, we will do things. And if you need me, you know, 100% I'm there for you. Yeah. I take it, it's a proper job, I think, to be a friend. You can't do it willy nilly. So when I've had tough times, like I definitely did this summer, there were friends who were just absolutely on point. And also like last year when I was ill and I was in hospital, the, pe- the number of people who visited me uh. and not just once, but like multiple occasions was really, I think it was also lovely for my parents to see because they didn't quite realise, because obviously to them, they worry about me travelling all the time and being on my own uh. and seeing all the friends I had coming in to look after me and check that I was okay. I think really uplifted them as well because they knew that, you know, I'm not a complete, Loner.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, as I say, there is, as I said at the top, there, there is a light about you, and I think audiences and people generally are uh, are attracted to that. Um, can we talk about that then, just for a moment, uh, when you were, um, you did have these back problems um, a year, a year or two ago. So you did just to take people through it who didn't know. So you did uh, Swan, the show Swan, which was nominated for Edinburgh Comedy Awards. Um, yeah. And then you did um, Chiff Chaff, a musical about the economy. Yeah. I guess inspired by your father. And then you went straight from that Edinburgh into doing Medusa. That's um, in London, wasn't it? Or in Southampton, wasn't it? Um, And then you you woke up at 3 a.m. and you were paralyzed from the waist down. Yeah, it was
1: really annoying. <laughs> um, I'd also done an ice skating show with Tony Law, the Weirdos ice skating oh, show, yes, which I'd done yeah. with a couple of broken ribs, mm. which I didn't realise. The problem is that's happened recently is because it's become part of a show and then it became part of a sort of PR campaign or something that was sol- sold, the sort of story of it has become more theatrical with each retelling. Mm. And obviously, on stage, you're sort of. you simmering away all the minutia in order to get to the bare extreme details in order to create the maximum comedic story yeah. which actually when you look at those and it's all just black and white with no grey it sounds so extreme oh. the truth was I had multiple um, slipped discs that was sort of going in and out and each that was why the degrees of pain were so varying throughout the year so I was never taking it so seriously and I was never resting and so I was getting to points during Medusa a lot of the time where I couldn't move and then I would be completely locked up and I wouldn't be able to feel my legs or move them. And then suddenly, like, you know, suddenly it would just relax again and then it would be absolutely fine. So I could never quite, you know, back myself to go, I should go into hospital. And it was only when I woke up at three o'clock in the morning and I realized I'd wet myself, which was what they always said. They said, the moment you wet yourself or lose bladder or bowel control, that is when you ring us. Because I've been going to the doctors about it and they said, just keep your eye out on this symptom. Mm. So the moment that happened, there was no wasting time. I rang them and they couldn't work out why that was the case. But they think sometimes with trauma, spinal stuff, these things do just randomly happen. And then I had the spinal operation, it was good, but it was more the post-traumatic stress of the whole thing that knocked me, Uh, of feeling powerless and losing your feminine, you know, when people talk about being emasculated, I just felt totally effeminated. uh, And then I also started drinking again, quite considerably after the recovery, uh, which wasn't the best. So uh, it was a tough time. But then also it was a time that I managed to wake work for me in that I used it to become creative again because I then created love songs to guinea yeah. pigs out of nothing. And those three shows I did at Vault Festival in Feb, those of oh. my friends came to see it and they said it was the best show I'd ever done and they'd seen all my work because then it was just so raw.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I wonder how the energy of the show has changed now because it was the last show last night and it didn't feel... It felt really flat, and I wonder if that was also the audience just, you know, you can't blame an audience and you can't blame anyone, but I just feel like all the conditions didn't seem conducive to that show. And conditions. I wonder how different it was and, we're, and I'm quite relieved to put it to bed now because I don't really want I don't really feel the need to keep on talking about that period of my life anymore. Because uh. it sort of happened and now I'm like, well, also other people have gone through considerably worse. Uh. You can't keep on monetizing a trauma. <laughs> and I'm quite anti-commodifying one
0: because
1: uh. that wasn't what I was doing at the beginning and it's definitely not what I've been thinking I've been doing. But I think if you keep on doing a show for too long, yeah, it becomes stale and the meaning of it really dissipates.
0: I think particularly when it's therapeutic, There's uh, when you do a show that's therapeutic immediately after something happens, it can be helpful and it can be also entertaining because the audience can see it's very raw and very real yeah, and, and you can still s- be going through it. But yeah, a year later, you can be punishing yourself. I can't remember who I was talking to about that. Oh, yes, it was uh, it, it was Richard Gads, you know, with, mm. with his play um, Baby Reindeer. So we're going to be talking to him soon as well about... He, you know, him going through a lot and then continuing to talk about it mm. is, is a hard thing to do. Totally. Um, but you found yourself... So you were in bed for three months, were you, with that?
1: Yeah, and I mean, even now I've still got really bad back pains, which yeah, is sorry. why after this I'm going to have a massage. Yeah. Which seems so decadent, and I spoke and to a lot of people it is, but I was thinking, oh, I don't care anymore because if it helps me walk... Like, cause I just, I've lost so much energy. I could I used to be so energetic. I'd get up at seven, I'd go to the gym, oh. I'd write, I'd then go swimming. I walked everywhere. Like I once walked from Brixton to Alexandra Palace oh. for the rehearsals for Weirdos. You know, I just walked constantly. I was a really active woman.
0: Mm.
1: And now, I mean, I find the bus a trial. Oh. I, f- I, f- I spend 70% of my time asleep. And the rest of my time thinking about being asleep, I have no energy anymore. My oh, body right. feels so delicate all the time. Mm. And I'm constantly, I cry so easily now. <laughs> I think my body is still recovering in some way. Yeah. Like the echo of
0: the last year is still. Is there a prognosis on that in terms of things you have to do to?
1: I need to do physio and build up my core and yeah, rest what I'm, as well. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Yeah.
0: This is becoming a slightly different podcast, but Pilates and, uh, yeah. Um, So, how, I mean, God, so how do you. Um, are yes. you thinking in these moments where you think, oh, I just want to sleep, are you also thinking creatively? Because you've been incredibly creative over the last you know, year, you're doing this show and you, you say you're working a lot in the week. How do you get that energy? Is it just burning inside of you to keep churning these shows out? You know? I
1: just can't. I can't stop. That sounds really wanky. Yeah, yeah. But I get really depressed if I can't make theatre or work or yeah, if yeah. I can't write. Yeah. I have to be creating in some way. Me and Helen Duff, we're making a show at the moment about the surrealist Leonora Carrington. And for us, it's very much now becoming a show about what it means to make work and what it means our relationship to our art. I'm doing that and then I'm making a horror show called Gorgon in yeah. February. I can't say February. I've never been able to say February.
0: Um, I think that's your biggest issue.
1: Uh, yeah, so I always say Feb. But anyway, so I'm doing it in February at um, the uh, Vault Festival. Yeah. And I'm absolutely terrified because it's a horror show. It's not a comedy show. So it's a real curveball to my previous work.
0: Yeah. So I'm doing
1: that. And then... Also trying to prep for Edinburgh, potentially, and then also trying to write things and yeah. be financially stable because yeah. I just want to get enough money to have my own house so I can then get drunk one night and get someone to impregnate me so I can just have my own baby <laughs> and then bring them on stage with me and reenact The Lion King. That's all I want.
0: I think that's everyone's plan. Yeah. Um,
1: Is that too much to ask?
0: God, no. Is it your, your mental well-being defined by needing to do comedy? Because you say at a lot of the time you just want to sleep, but it is comedy and creativity and theatre that keeps you going to a certain extent. Yeah, Yeah. But do you recognise that's a dangerous place to be? Oh you're... yes,
1: it's terrifying and I don't yeah. like it, which is currently why I'm getting a PhD application together, because that's my new goal, I really want to get a PhD, mm. like in something specific, I don't just want to do a PhD, but I have like a, a research topic I want to do, yeah. but I want to build up more, because I just like being with people, I love being with young people, yeah. teenagers, I love teaching workshops, yeah. communicating, that's it, I think yeah. that's inherently it, being able to communicate, yeah, is what I'm addicted to. Is well, not addicted. That sounds unhealthy, but
0: I yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just
1: love being with people. Yeah. But then I love being on my own. It's a conundrum.
0: It is. It is. But I mean, just a. It is a dangerous place. Um, for your for your mental well being. If you if you're putting, you know, your happiness and keeping going in terms of comedy. So if you can do other things. I'm oh, sure definitely. You recognise that that's a you know much uh, a healthier place to be. It is hard, though, isn't it? When well, it's why
1: I spend money on nice. Like last week, I mean, I I'm a, I struggle for money quite a lot. Like because you are working different ways and trying to keep these projects also going mm. and trying to make sure you stay relevant and you're making work that's relevant to now. But the last few weeks, I try and put a little bit of emergency money aside so I can treat myself and take myself to things that I like just for me. Like I take myself on dates. I took myself to the opera. Oh, nice! And got a really cheap ticket. Yeah. And do sort of things that remind me that there's a world outside myself, and also keeping myself aware of what's going on outside of the comedy world. Yeah. I watch loads of art, and I watch listen to lots of things and radio shows, but I don't watch a huge amount of comedy now. Yeah. And I've started watching less as I've gotten older, and I got more into this
0: career. Do you think? mentioning the PhD there, do you think if you could find something that could replace comedy and keep you going that you'd that you'd choose that? Um, because, I, you know, again, reading some of the things you say about and some of the things you've said today about, you know, your perfect world of books and grass and lake and no technology and animals and guinea pigs, and this is kind of incongruous to your lifestyle, I guess, as a comedian.
1: So I have like this fantasy and it's like my number one dream fantasy and I've had it for years and years and years. So my dream is that I can have, I have a bedroom and it's got rose furniture on it, mm. right? And I wake up in the morning and I've got a partner and they bring in coffee and, a, and there's a big dog at the end of the bed. and these two, big what? Big dog. dog? And these okay. two little babies, two little children come in, which are mine, and they go, hello, can we get in the bed? And I go... of course you can and they get in the bed and we all watch telly together and we eat biscuits and drink tea and then we all go for a walk around the park and then after we've done that and it's weekend I go upstairs to my office space and I've got this massive wooden desk in the shape of a kidney bean and I sit and I do work and then I know at the end of this I've got a gig to do and I leave the house and I go out into the city and I do my gig and I perform and then at the end I come home and I've got my babies and my dog and my partner and a bed. And I've got my desk and my rose wallpaper. And oh. I know that sounds like a very commercial Western, right? like, but that for me was always, that's always been my fantasy. Comedy oh. will always be part of my life because I love the theatricality of it. I'm a showwoman. I always yeah, yeah. have been and I will be a showwoman,
0: I think, until I die. Yeah. But I want also to be a woman be- in the yeah. other right. I mean, you call that a fantasy, that just sounds like a very normal you know, a normal thing to wish for. A a normal life, having kids, a family.
1: Well, being a 28-year-old woman currently now, Mm. I will very, probably never own a house unless I married someone who financially was able to afford one or... If someone was able to give me a house, Mm. or if I did so incredibly well in comedy, like I was one of the 1% that, you know, has continuous television fame, Mm. then I, but the chances of that are very slim. So my dream is, my reality will probably be rent or, you know, a tent and allotment. Mm. Children obviously would be a dream, but then at the same time finding stability to find someone you'd want to settle down with. It's something that always proves really complicated. Um, and I don't know anyone that makes a kidney desk. <laughs> and then also the wallpaper. You need a really nice landlord to let you have your own wallpaper put up. So there's sort of very, there's specific nuances to the dream that really do make it yeah, a fantasy. Sorry. I was
0: forgetting about the kidney desk. That is unrealistic. <laughs> so in all of the things that you've done, I mean, in virtually everything you've you've done and you've mentioned today, your childhood and infant school and leading right up to that and those groups and you, you're all saying that you're slightly, you know, you're different to the other people there. Um, but at the same time, there's a, there's a, you know, you're talking about wanting that two kids and that kidney shaped desk. And mm. um, do you feel like there's anything that they're linked in terms of you've you've spent a lot of your life being the slightly different one and being...
1: Well, I've never thought I was that different. It's just everybody tells me I've been different. I think I'm the most normal person I know. Yeah. But then other people just think I'm weird, and I don't understand. like I think things that other people do are weird. Yeah. I don't know. I find life very complicated, (laughs) and people are very confusing, (laughs) and uh, I don't know. Oh, I don't know nothing. <laughs> I just want, I'll just put one foot in front of the other and just make sure I've eaten some food. <laughs>
0: well, there we go. That's a good life mantra. Maybe better than failure is not an option. Um, I wonder what my coasters say. I don't think they say anything. I think I think they're just pictures of London and colours.
1: <laughs> You've got such a nice house.
0: Thank Can you. I just come, come and Come and move in. It. Let me show you my kidney desk upstairs. I, oh
1: my goodness, don't. You'll make me cry. <laughs> I'm so hormonal <laughs> all the
0: time. Hide the glass fruit. Um, well, you know, we could... Um, yes. Wow. This has been great. I've loved it. Oh, that's I hope you've nice. Enjo- I hope you've enjoyed it. You, you've, you've gone through a, a lot of different physical positions in the last hour. and um, Yes yes your success uh, which i'm sure will continue unbounded and buy you that big house and that kidney desk um you know i think i just think you're great and uh, what you do particularly in comedy is great pushing the boundaries and um, it's what we need in this industry and indeed the world thank you so much elf i've loved that
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you very much. So that is our show for today. But join us again next time for more Psychomedy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify UK, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked it, please give us a five-star review. It helps other people to find us and only psychopaths leave three-star reviews. Psychomedy was written and presented by me, Nathan Cassidy. BSc in Psychology and produced and edited by Mike Hanson. B.A. English for Pop People Productions. Theme music by Mike as well. So that's Psychomedy. Please subscribe, rate, and listen back on all the great episodes so far. They're listed and there's video clips, etc at psychomedy.co.uk. Follow us on social media at podpeopleuk, at psychomedypod, at Nathan Cassidy, and at elf underscore lions. Lots of love. Thank you again, Elf. Thank you so much. See you again next week. Cheers. Ball.